Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 17. We'll be in verse 14 this morning. Matthew 17. Be in 14 to 20. Some of you may have 21. 14 to the end of it, whatever it is. <clears throat> when I was growing up as a kid, one of my favorite artists was a man by the name of Rich Mullins. I always appreciated his lyrics. He was so very poetic, always. Sometimes cheesy, I'll grant you that. Sometimes a little cheesy. And sometimes his music sounded like it came from the 80s, because it did. But he always had a way of depicting the Christian life in sort of a unique kind of of way that was always very touching. One of his songs that I think is particularly apt for what we're going to be reading today um, hit home this week as I was thinking through it. I'm going to read some of the lyrics from it. Um, the song is called Hold Me Jesus, and the song goes like this. Uh, well, sometimes my life just don't make sense at all. When the mountains look so big and my faith just seems so small. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? And I wake up in the night and feel the dark. It's so hot inside my soul, I swear there must be blisters on my heart. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? Have you ever stood in front of a mountain of sorts that seemed steadfast and immovable, and you were thinking to yourself in the midst of this seemingly insurmountable obstacle, how is it possible that my faith would be so small right now? Doesn't Jesus actually say to us, if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, and you say to this mountain, move into the sea, then it will move. How many of us have thought, is my faith really smaller than a mustard seed? The disciples in our text this morning find themselves in a situation much like this. They've been given a job to do, and they have failed at doing it. And they have the question, why? Why this mountain seems so insurmountable? And Jesus replies to them, and I think so often his reply to them is not very comfortable for us. Let's read our text, Matthew 17, 14 to 20, or 21. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to them and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith 
like a grain of mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our time in your word this morning. Scriptures promise us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And that as seeds of truth are sown into the hearts of people, he often snatches it away. And so we pray that you would keep him at bay as only you can. That in the reading of your word, we would hear it. Its truth would sink down deep in our hearts. We would understand it rightly. We would apply it to our lives. And we'd be changed having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we moved into this, this section in Matthew, which extends from the end of chapter 13 all the way through to the beginning of chapter 19, we've seen more and more what it means to be a disciple. And we've also seen and will continue to see the cost of following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus is going to be ratcheted up the further we go into the gospel, not least of which even next week as he tells them, I'm going to go all the way to the grave. The cost of following him then is going to be ratcheted up all the more. It was just a couple of weeks ago that the disciples of Jesus, um, we, that as, as they had confessed what it means to, to, to them to follow Jesus, Jesus tells them that they have to deny themselves, they have to take up their cross, and they have to come and die to follow him. So to be his disciple means certain death, we found out a few weeks ago. And then last week, we saw that what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus was that you had to to value him rightly as the one and only Son of God, and subsequently then obey his commands, which is a difficult task for sinners such as we. So this king that was introduced to us all the way back in chapter 1, from the earliest pages of Matthew, he introduces this king to us. And then in chapters 4 to 7, he introduces us to the kingdom and what its citizenship looks like. And then ultimately, i got to be honest with you, in chapters 8 to 10, this kingdom that he's introducing sounds really terrific. Because he goes around in 8 to 10 healing people, bringing them back from the dead, bringing them back from all kinds of illnesses. And we see this kingdom that he's introducing to us has this kind of power and this kind of effect. Where do I sign up? And so lots of people are coming to Jesus, wanting to follow, because of the overflow of what it means to be a part of this kingdom. But he tells them along the way, listen, if you come after me, I don't have a home. You're going to be sleeping on rocks. Listen, if you come after me, we're going to be going to sinners and tax collectors. We're going to be going to Gentiles. We're going to be going to... All kinds of crazy people right now you don't want anything to do with. This is what it means to be my disciple. And so we get from chapter 11 on where people are not buying in totally to this idea of following Jesus and pushing back just a little bit. And by the time we get to the passage that we're in today, many people have just disavowed Jesus altogether. The healings may be nice, but fewer and fewer people are willing to do what it takes to actually be a part of what Jesus is doing. 
But as Matthew, in the more recent passages, begins to tighten the screws down on what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus, it's not only separating people in Jesus' day from Jesus, it's also speaking to people in our day. And as we continue to define what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, this morning we're going to see in our text what the power of discipleship really is. What power is really there and available to the one who follows after Christ? I want to look at two elements that Matthew brings to our attention through this story. The first is what the power of discipleship is not, and the second, what it is. The first, the power of discipleship is not in self-reliance. The power of discipleship is not in self-reliance. Look at what he says in 14 all the way to 16. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him uh, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly for he often falls into the fire and often into water. And I, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, I want you to just remember the scene here for just a second. Uh, Jesus has, in the last passage, taken three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on this mountain, and he was transfigured before them. So his glory was unfurled. His, his glory was uh, disclosed before them. They got to see a picture of what Jesus is really like as he's transfigured uh, there before them. And Luke tells us, the Gospel of Luke tells us that they spent the night up there, and so the story that we get here in Matthew picks up on the next day when these four, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, are coming down to the bottom of the mountain, and they stumble upon this scene where we presume the other nine disciples have been gathered around this boy and his father. And so there's a father who has a child who is demon-possessed, and he has brought the child Probably to Jesus is who he's looking for. And we could probably assume that the disciples are playing the guard of Jesus and saying, no, he went up on the mountain. He'll be down later. We can take care of whatever you need. And uh, so the disciples are there around him. And so Peter, James, and John, and Jesus walk up on this scene where there's this crowd gathered around the disciples who are also gathered around this boy with his father. And they're trying to cast out this demon. Now, the boy is probably in the midst of convulsions or in some type of a seizure, which is obviously drawing a lot of attention because at the moment where Jesus casts out the demon, we see that the boy is immediately right and in his right mind. And it's apparent that the demon has gone from him because he's instantly healed. And so you can imagine that the scene here that's being painted for us is pretty chaotic. And I'm sure Jesus and the disciples are walking up on this going, what in the world is going on here? as they get up closer to them. As soon as the father sees Jesus, he, he runs up to him and he kneels before him out of respect and he, he begs him to heal his son. And he tells him that, the, that he suffers from seizures and he often falls into water to drown him. He often falls into fire to, to kill him another way. And the disciples, it seems, have been trying for some time to cast this demon out, but to no avail. And the father is desperate for healing for his son and probably a little frustrating. Now, probably as you've read this, what's come to mind is that this boy is suffering from epilepsy. 
Now, there are two different crowds in any church, but particularly churches in the South. One crowd is largely represented by uh, the older generation or people that grew up in the church uh, from cradle and on. And that crowd, when you read the text of Scripture, you say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's it. He has a demon, he has a demon. That's what we're going with, because that's what the Bible says. And then there is another group in the church, largely represented by a younger generation, a younger demographic, or those that did not grow up in the church or are de-churched, whose parents did not really disciple them, that they read this text And they're a little bit confused by it because it looks like the disciples and Jesus are trying to cast a demon out of a boy that has what we know today, what it seems like to be epilepsy. This is a pretty common thing that a lot of people suffer with uh, today. And so it raises questions in the mind of those who did not grow up in church or who have questions about the scripture itself, doesn't Jesus here know that this isn't demonic, but that this is just epilepsy? Doesn't he know this? And believe it or not, stories like this one, this story in particular, but stories like it as well, lead actually many to discount the Bible as merely a book that is trapped in its time. And we don't believe that. We believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. And what that means in inerrancy, it means that it does not make errors. It is inerrant in its original manuscripts. But then we also believe that it's infallible in that it's incapable of leading you into falsehood. That what it says is true and its ultimate outcome, when properly understood, is going to lead you into truth and you won't be in falsehood. Now, for a person to say, well, Jesus is casting out a demon, when that's clearly epilepsy, is saying the Bible seems to then be locked in its time. It's not a timeless book like we, like the Christians say it is. It explains everyday illnesses as demonic possession. And it explains a lot of things as demonic possession. And it even causes questions reading back into the text of other demonic possessions. Is there really such a thing as demonic possession? Remember Jesus stumbles upon the demoniac in the land of the Gadarenes and uh, the two demoniacs and he casts out the demon. Well, is this just a guy who was maybe bipolar? Maybe he had some other mental illness that a psychiatrist could address with medicines. There's even something dangerous here as well for Christians, too. Because many Christians will have someone that they know or are caring for who is epileptic. And it will lead many Christians, through a bad reading of the text, to think that their child or the person they're caring for does not really have epilepsy, but has demonic possession. This happens quite frequently in the third world, in a lot of African countries. We were on a mission trip to Tanzania where we actually had a situation where both of these things happened. Um, A person on our trip uh, was sick, was violently ill, throwing up every day, and uh, they didn't know what was wrong with him. We were on an island in the middle of Lake Victoria, so we didn't have access to really any kind of medical care. 
And our African brothers and sisters are gathering around this person trying to cast out a demon, praying endlessly day and night, bless their heart, for this demon to be cast out of this, uh, this, this Christian man. And we got him back to the mainland, and it turns out he had an amoeba in his stomach, and he needed some antibiotics, and it was causing this violent reaction. But it leads people uh, to believe and to read into the situation that what Jesus is saying here is all epilepsy is demonic possession, and so we need to try to cast out the demon. Now, the problem with this way of thinking, all these ways of thinking about this passage, is this kid is not merely epileptic. He actually has a demon. And the demon is causing the epilepsy. That's not the case for all epilepsy, but it is the case for this individual. Same trip. We actually encountered five different girls all at the same time. We went into classrooms and we began praying for these students who were in this school. And as we began praying, no sooner did we get out the words, Heavenly Father, than five of these girls who each of them were demon-possessed fall out in the ground, foaming at the mouth, and having a seizure, just like this kid. There's a difference between epilepsy and demonic possession. And the reason that we know that in this text and in the Bible's literature itself is because the Jews actually knew what epilepsy was. They knew what epilepsy was. They knew what demonic possession was. And they knew that the two were different. Sometimes they look very similar, but they knew that the two were different. And you can see this all the way back in chapter 4 of Matthew, where Jesus is healing uh, various people, and it lists, different than people possessed by a demon, people that are having seizures, along with paralytics. So there are people that have seizures that are diagnosed as such, and Jesus is healing those two all the way back in chapter 4. And so those are considered different than people with demonic possession, which is listed earlier in that same passage. But even outside of, the Matthew, outside of Matthew and outside of the New Testament, we know that Jews knew what epilepsy was, and they diagnosed it different than demonic possession. So we can trust the Scripture here that this kid was not only having seizures, but he was truly possessed by a demon who was seizing upon him at that moment and seeking to kill him, which is how we know that it's actually a demon is because why? It it takes opportune moments in time to try to put this kid to death, namely around water and around fire, which is bringing his parents great concern. And so it happens more frequently when he's around those situations. So we know that that's what's going on here. So then what is the the disciples' problem with this particular exorcism? Look at what he says in 17 to 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Now, Jesus is clearly exasperated here, not just with the disciples, though that's certainly the case with them too, but with the entire generation. Now, you remember last week that I talked about the similarities between Jesus' transfiguration and Moses going up onto Mount Sinai. There were similarities between Jesus and Moses, and that Jesus is kind of the new Moses going up onto the mountain, and there's similarities between him and Moses as they go up on the mountain, and uh, the glory of God is revealed in them, and there's some differences as well. Well, here, Jesus' response 
calling them a faithless and twisted generation is also strikingly similar to the way Moses depicted his own generation that he was leading right at the end of his ministry. De- uh, Deuteronomy 32 says this in verse 5. It says, They have dealt corruptly with him. This is Moses speaking. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer God's children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then in verse 20, he says, uh, this is Moses speaking, saying, God said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They are a faithless generation, a faithless and crooked or twisted generation. So they're twisted and faithless. So here, the new Moses in Jesus is essentially asserting the same thing about the generation that's around him that was true of Moses' generation as he's leading them out of the wilderness. Now, why would he call them a twisted and faithless generation? We've seen already that there's ample evidence to profess faith in Christ. What he has done for the people in healing and teaching, giving evidence to his Messiahship is abundant. Yet largely the culture has no desire to actually follow him. But the problem is more than just the generation. The problem is also with the disciples themselves. In verse 19 The disciples are despondent and they ask him, why weren't we able to cast this demon out? And he tells them, it is because of your little faith. Little probably meaning poor faith there. Your impoverished faith. He's disappointed in the disciples specifically. Now remember, all the way back to chapter 10, verse 1 and verses verses 1 and verse 8 where he sent them out to the masses and he gave to them the authority to heal and to cast out demons. And now he comes down the mountain and these that had the authority to heal and to cast out demons are unable to do so. Why? Did they lack the authority all of a sudden? Did he take the authority with them up the mount with him up the mountain? Had Jesus just removed the authority from them? No. It seems that they've forgotten where the authority came from. The disciples certainly lack no confidence in trying to cast this demon out. They had done this before. They've had exorcisms in the past. They will have exorcisms in the future. They know that they're capable of casting out this, this demon while Jesus is up on the mountain. Now, you may notice at the end of this passage, some of you will have a note in your Bible that says, some manuscripts insert verse 21. And the, what they insert, it says this, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Now, we know Jesus said that because it's in the other Gospels in this story. We know Jesus actually did say that. But it's become more evident over time as we've discovered manuscripts of Matthew 
uh, in the dirt, basically digging up the dirt, that Matthew didn't originally write that in his gospel. Somebody probably sought to reconcile the other gospels with the account in Matthew and left it in there and it got, it got copied a number of times. But Matthew didn't originally write that. But he didn't have to because it's implied when Jesus tells the disciples that it's because of your little faith. In the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus uses that phrase, little faith, which he does several times, it's a reference to the disciples looking at the physical instead of trusting in the Lord behind the physical. So for instance, in Matthew chapter 6, when they're, when they're worried about food and clothing, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, trust that the Lord will provide for you. In Matthew chapter 8, when they're nervous and they're in the boat and the storm is, is happening and they wake Jesus up and they're scared for their lives, he says, oh, you of little faith, don't you know who's in the boat with you? In chapter 16, they don't have any food. They've, they're out of bread. After Jesus has just multiplied the bread twice for them, they panic over the fact that they're out of bread. And he says, oh, you of little faith, don't you realize God can provide for you? And here again in chapter 18, it seems that the disciples' prayerlessness, as Jesus says in the other Gospels, in trying to cast out this demon, is proof of their poor faith. They're not relying on the Lord in prayer. They're trying this in and of themselves. They're thinking about this exorcism as a mathematical formula, as magic. Abracadabra, Alakazam, be gone, demon. We have the authority. And Jesus is criticizing this way of thinking. The disciples are obviously relying on the power that they're supposed to have been given. But self-reliance is not faith. No matter how much you believe it to be true. Second thing I want you to see, what the power of discipleship is, the power of discipleship is in faithful dependence on God. The power of discipleship is in faithful dependence on God. Look at verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This verse is frequently misunderstood, I think. Now, Jesus is actually going to say something similar to this again, and we'll have a chance to revisit this later on in the gospel when they get to Jerusalem. But I think it needs to be understood for what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. First, he tells them that they have little faith, and that's the reason the demon didn't come out. But he tells them that what is required is faith like a grain of mustard seed, and they can do great things. Now, to call something uh, mustard seed faith, mu mustard seed faith to us, if we were to put that in 21st century uh, language, would probably be saying something like microscopic faith. T tiny. You can't imagine anything smaller than this. To accuse them of having less than mustard seed faith is the same thing as accusing them of having no faith at all or saying that their faith is too impoverished, too poor to be considered actual faith. 
He's criticizing them because their faith is missing. But he's not saying, hey, you got to sit there and squeeze out mustard seed kind of faith. You got to have a certain amount. And when you have that certain amount, it'll move mountains. No, he's actually saying the size of your faith doesn't matter. It's not the size. You can have faith that tiny. And you can move something insurmountable as a mountain. But your faith has to be actual faith. It has to be true faith. If you have true faith and it's super tiny, or you have just a little bit of that true faith, mountains can move. But what is true faith? If you ask a Christian in the pews today, what is true faith? The answer that comes back to you will sound most like positive thinking. That true faith is positive thinking. Thinking positively about a certain outcome. We get a cancer diagnosis and we'll say, God is going to heal me. I have faith. We have a son or daughter who flies the coop, so to speak, and we want salvation to come to one that is near to us, and we say, God is going to save them. I have faith. And then someone says to you, okay, but what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't heal you? What if he doesn't save that person that you really want to come to saving faith? You push that person away. And you say, that's negative talk. You have to have faith. Believe. Because we think that faith is the same thing as positive thinking. But in reality, that's presumption and it's paganism. You're presuming upon the will of God. You're saying, he is going to do this. I know he's going to do this because I have faith that he's going to do this. But you're presuming upon the will of God when you have no idea what his intention is with that cancer or with that lost person or whatever else might be requiring your faith. So positive thinking is presumption masquerading as faith. Positive thinking is a a kind of faith, sure, but it's faith in your own power because what it's saying is if I keep a positive attitude about this and I eliminate all other forms of negativity and I push them all aside, then I will have earned the thing that I seek most because after all, I kept faith and God, now you owe me that healing or that result that I was wanting. Do you know how you know that positive thinking isn't the kind of faith that God requires in this passage? Because the disciples are thinking positively. The disciples are trying to cast this demon out and they know they can do it. They've done it before. They're going to do it again. 
They have been given the assignment and the authority from Jesus to do it. They are applying that same positive thinking about this demon that they have countless times before. They are relying on their past experiences, their their giftedness. They are thinking positively. And yet Jesus says to them, you have less than microscopic, untrue, fraudulent, and poor faith. Do you know what they're not doing in this exorcism? Praying. We know that from the other Gospels. We know that it's implied here in this text. They're not praying. Because as it turns out, the faith that is considered true is faith that is relying on God the Father to do the work of the kingdom through you. Faith that is true is a faith that relies on God the Father and trusts Him implicitly to do the work of the kingdom through you. So what that means for us, prayerlessness is a sign of you working through your own power rather than relying on God's power to work through you. We fall into this trap of prayerlessness time and time again. You do it, I do it, we all do it. But let's understand and call it what it is. It's faithlessness. Days without prayer are faithless days because there is no reliance there on the Lord to work through you. Faith is reliance and trust in God. And there is no singular act that demonstrates poverty of spirit that demonstrates being poor in spirit, that demonstrates a dependence on God more so than prayer. It's why we were given prayer. In prayer, you're coming to God in full reliance on His power because you realize that in your poverty, you bring nothing to the table. In this case, for exorcism, but in your case, for any number of things. Even a little bit, Jesus says. Even a reliance on God to work through you, even the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain, can do unbelievable things. Praise God that positive thinking isn't the faith that he's looking for. Because more often than not, I'm shaking like a leaf. More often than not, every problem I have seems insurmountable, unable to be overcome. Whatever the challenge is, whatever the frustration, what seems like I fall into a pattern of, tell me if I'm the only one, time and time again, is that I apply logic and thought to it first. Look at it from all sides. Turn the diamond around. Look at all the faces of the diamond. Apply logic. Don't tell me I can't do that. All it takes is the right calculations. Just a math problem is all it is. Whatever you give me. And then frustration after frustration comes to me when the math doesn't quite work out the way that I wanted to. I'm bad at math, by the way. Then I I pray, God, why aren't you listening to me? 
I want to work it out this way. Then I get to the end of my rope and I think God has forgotten all about me. God, why have you forgotten all about me? Why aren't you paying attention to me here? Then I get despondent. Fine. Just do whatever you want. I don't care. Why did you even bring me to this situation? If you didn't want me to look at it, you wouldn't want me to do what I do with it. Why did you even put me here? Fine. Then sometime later, there's a confession. Lord, I've been acting like an idiot. I don't know how you're going to take care of this situation. I'm asking for a particular outcome that I want so badly. But at the end of the day, I trust you. And we come back to that same thing Jesus told us to do at the beginning of the book when we pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And that, as it turns out, is exactly where he wants me to stay. I don't know what situation you find yourself in this morning. It may be as serious as a bad health report. Maybe something you haven't even shared with anybody. Perhaps a loved one has flown the coop and you want them to come to salvation. Or you may just be frustrated for one reason or another at various trials that have come your way. Perhaps you've just come from one of these situations. Or perhaps you're about to go into one of these situations that you just need to take notes and... and Apply them when the time comes. That should cover every single one of us in here. We're either in a trial, coming from a trial, or about to go to a trial. I can't tell you what the outcome of that trial is going to be, but I can tell you this. The power of discipleship is not in your own hands, but in the hands of the one you follow. That's where the power is. On the cross of Christ... God did something amazing for you. He poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of you. That's the nuts and bolts of the gospel message. That he has satisfied his wrath in Christ. And so what that means for you, what the gospel message means for you, is that if you are following Christ, if you are in Christ, God has no more hostility toward you. What that means is that no matter the outcome, whether the diagnosis leads to death, which many times the diagnosis does, the cancer report may actually be death, but whether it leads to death or the diagnosis, uh, the medicine and all of those things actually comes back with a clear report, what it means is that God is working for your good and for his glory and you can trust him. Because he has no hostility toward you. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. And he's for you. And you can trust him because he's good. Do you know what kind of power that is for the disciple of Christ? A reliance not on your own abilities, but a reliance on Christ's ability, a total reliance on his ability to do everything? Do you know what kind of power there is for the disciple of Christ there to have peace no matter what the outcome is? 
Do you know what kind of winsome confidence that you're going to display before the watching world when your world should be on fire and yet you remain calm? Do you know how refreshing it is to be able to give a totally honest answer when people ask you, why aren't you worried about this? And you're able to tell them honestly because you're not worried about coming across as thinking positively about the situation. You have no qualms about saying, calm, I'm shaking like a leaf. But the king of glory is on my side. So what ultimately do I have to worry about? And what say do I have in this situation? Do you know what kind of confidence that is? Do you know what kind of power is there? Rich Mullins finishes that song with this same resolution. He says, surrender don't come naturally to me. I'd rather fight you for something that I don't really want than take what you give that I need. And I've beat my head against so many walls. And now I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. Surrender. So then what do I do? How do I actually have that kind of faith? a complete and total reliance on God, whatever the situation is before me. Well, the first is very obvious, and actually the first two are very obvious. Jesus tells the disciples this in the other Gospels, and it's alluded to in Matthew. The first is pray. Pray. We have to be careful. James warns us in James 4, 2-3. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we do have to check our motivations in prayer. We do have to check our motivations. Why am I wanting this particular thing? Because here's what is true. God does not move mountains to impress your friends. He does not give you Porsches and Lamborghinis so that your friends will be impressed by the power that you have. It is about His glory and His name, not yours. So our motivations need to be checked. But there's not more a humbling position to be in than prayer. The second is fasting. Jesus mentions this as well. It's alluded to in Matthew in the edition that's there. Fasting is confessing your dependence on God and your need for the things that God supplies more than you actually need daily bread. More than food, more than everyday sustenance. What I need is the Lord more than anything. And you are convincing your own body of this. You're reminding your own body of this. If you're curious about fasting, not that I'm the authority on fasting by any means, but I preached a sermon on fasting on September 30th, 2018. I would encourage you to go back there and listen to that if, if that's what you're considering doing. It's a regular habit that we should be in as Christians. It's expected in the scripture, though not commanded. And I think we should pay attention to and do well to listen to that particular thing. There's also a number of books that are good that are written on it 
and I'd be happy to review those with you if you need to. The third thing, though, is trust. Prayer, fasting, trust. Now, you don't know what he's going to do in any situation that presents itself to you because you cannot tame God. You don't get to dictate the terms. You don't get to tell him that he owes you this. God, my faith has remained steadfast. My positive thinking has been up here. So you owe me this healing. You owe me this result because I have maintained faith. You don't get to put him on a leash. He is not tame. I'm reminded of Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. First time Susan figures out that Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the story, that Aslan is a lion, she trembles in fear. And she says, a lion? I expected him to be a man. I didn't, I didn't know he's a lion. Well, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver, who she's talking to, answers her, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Why can you trust him? with whatever your outcome, with whatever your situation before you, because he's good. Because he loves you. And if you are in Christ, everything he does for you is for your good and for his glory. And he answers prayers. He answers the prayer that you would pray if you knew the things that he knew. So ask him and trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know all the situations in this room, but I know a few. And I pray that you would bring comfort to them. Perhaps in this sermon, the text that we've read, the experience of the disciples, frustration, I pray you would bring comfort to each and every one of them. To relieve the burden that they have to continue this pattern of positive thinking, but yet fall back on their knees in prayer, trusting that whatever the outcome, what you desire is best. And let us trust that if we knew what you know, we would ask for all those things. Lord, I just pray that we would be a body characterized by dependence and trust on all that you provide. What we see as great in the moment and what sometimes in the moment feels really difficult and hard. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.